0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Cherry Zonkowski.
1: Like, yeah, titties and kisses and kisses and titties. is awesome. I love a free-for-all.
0: <laughs> that and more. But before that, the last chance to see Risk live is happening. I mean, live this year. <laughs> is happening on December 15th at Caveat in New York City, it is going to be live-streamed as well on YouTube. It's at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. That'll be our winter holidays evening, so it'll be a, a real joy. These caveat evenings have meant so much to us this year to be doing live theater right there in the room where you can see everyone's reactions and feel everyone's presence is just so nice so come on out and see the last show of the year december 15th risk is live at caveat get your tickets at risk-show.com slash Tour. And if you don't know, I don't know how you wouldn't know at this point, but if you don't know, thestorystudio.org is where you'll find our storytelling training. And this time of year, a lot of people buy gift certificates to give the gift of storytelling to someone they love. So if you go to thestorystudio.org slash gift dash certificates, everything you need to know is right there, the storystudio.org.
2: Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com
3: slash rs10 today.
0: Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is the music of Alfred Newman behind me now. It is the theme music to the movie The Seven Year Itch which I'm sure a lot of Risk listeners have never heard of or seen. But in any case, these are three stories this week that all come from 2014. This whole process of going through the archives to see what might have been mislabeled, what might have fallen through the cracks, uh, what we thought the audio was unrecoverable, but it is recoverable. This has been such a lifesaver during this couple of years that we haven't been able to be out on tour doing shows and instead go back into the archives and hear phenomenal stories that we've never run before. And so today, three of them from 2014, so we're calling the episode The Seven-Year Itch. You've probably seen the poster. You know, Marilyn Monroe is standing over a subway grating and the wind is blowing her skirt up and she's holding it down. That's The Seven-Year Itch. I want to make sure to give a little shout-out to our latest Patreon member, who is called Devoid. We always give a shout-out to someone when they give us $25 per month or more. There's a ton of incredible bonus content over there at patreon.com slash risk. And anyone who wants to give a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash show. All of that helps us out so, so much, and we're so grateful. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was shared at a Risk slash Body storytelling show in 2014. If you don't know Body Storytelling, you should. They have been around since before Risk, even, and the brainchild of Dixie De La Tour, over in san francisco it's a show of stories about sex and kink and sex positivity all that good stuff so yeah in 2014 risk i went out there to san francisco and dixie and i co-hosted a couple of shows at risk and body working together and so cherry zonkowski's story that we will hear second today in the episode that comes from one of those shows but before that we're gonna hear a story that was recorded in 2014 of course In Pittsburgh, when we went down to Pittsburgh that year, this story comes to us from Justin Channel. Justin is an independent filmmaker. They have two films, Winners Tape All, the Henderson Brothers story, and Die and Let Live. They're both streaming free on Tubi. Justin's story here is one of those examples where the audio was a bit mucked up. But our editors have done some restorative magic, so we can hear it now. Here's Justin Channel with a story we call The Perditionals.
4: Um, When I was 14, my friends and I, we started a gang. But we weren't like a violent gang of criminals, like we didn't deal drugs or have guns or anything. We were more like a bunch of 14 and 15-year-olds who were really immature and had an excess of energy and way too much time on their hands and really liked pranking people. Um, We chose a name for our gang, and we were called the Perditionals at the time, we didn't realize that the word perdition it's like a place kind of like limbo, and it's sort of a place where you have to like repent for your misdeeds, but then later we found out about it. we're like, oh that's even cooler, that makes our gang even harder, because we kind of looked at ourselves like we were um, like Junior Project Mayhem we were like Project Mayhem with more acne and no agenda <laughs> and uh, we also all had gang names, um that's really convenient when you're telling a story in public because you don't have to use anybody's name and you can protect anonymity. But uh, there wasn't a leader, but the guy was the closest. He was our Tyler Durden. He went by the name Cobra. And uh, he started the group because he was doing really bad in algebra and decided to steal the teacher's grade book. So everybody would start off with a clean slate, just like when Tyler Durden blew up all the credit card companies at the Fight Club and they all had their daddy race. That's what he was doing. And he had this amazing thing where whenever we would do something, we'd be getting chased. He could laugh hysterically, like almost like, I don't know, the, the Joker or the Riddler from Batman while still running. But over time, it would just slowly turn into like, I don't know, like a, a fat puppy playing bog. <laughs> but um, it was, it, I always really was amazed by that. And then there was another guy, he went by the name Fish. And I actually, I remember why he was called that. That was because he was really fast and he could slip in and out of places. And also, he was slippery in the sense that if he did get caught, he could talk his way out of anything. And it was really amazing. Side note, he's also the only one of us that ever became a cop, which is kind of surprising. And then there was also Ghost, And he was, I'd say he was sort of more like a follower, but he also had a historian role, because whenever there would be some epic adventure we had, he would draw out a story of it. I never got any of these drawings somehow, but I was kind of glad about it, because he always seemed to draw everybody shirtless, and I still don't know why. That was his thing, I don't know. But my name was Chief, and I had a historian role too, because I could operate a night vision camera. So whenever we would go out at night, I would videotape most of the ridiculous stuff we were doing because at that time, like Jackass and Tom Green were really big and we loved having like a video diary of all this stuff we were doing that we could show to our friends when they came over. And by far our biggest nighttime prank was ding dong ditching. Just basically you go up to someone's door, you knock on the door, you run and hide. But we treated this like an art form. It wasn't just that. We would scope out perfect houses. We would do like two houses at once to watch neighbors be confused. And our favorite, (laughs) favorite thing was when people would chase us. That was the best because that adrenaline rush was just amazing. But over time, even when people would chase us, that rush started to wear down. And we needed something new to do. And that came about at my friend Zach's, I'd say like 15th or 16th birthday. Now he wasn't a traditional member, but he did play a vital role to the gang. And that's, he had a mother that didn't care what his friends did in the middle of the night, as long as they didn't wake her up. And she let him have sleepovers every weekend. So that was our main base of operations. And um, so this was a birthday. It wasn't the typical group of friends. There were some other people from school there, but they all wanted to see us go out and ding dong ditch. And we're like, well, it's kind of boring now. And you know, there's too many people, it's not gonna work. Maybe we'll try to come up with something better. And we had our friend James there. And um, he's Korean, and I don't remember if he had a nickname, but I'm sure with us being like 15 or 16, it was probably something racially insensitive, like Ninja or Samurai or Bruce Lee. But he made the announcement of, okay, I have a condom in my wallet. Whoever can come up with the best idea of what to do with it, that's what we'll go out and do. So being a bunch of immature teenagers, we came up with... The most obvious idea for what to do with that condom we would take it and fill it up with mayonnaise and water so it was a what dick shaped water balloon and then we would throw it at a moving vehicle okay maybe not the most obvious thing but that's what we were doing next thing I knew I was in the bathroom with a jar of Mayo and a couple like I don't, I don't think this is the right consistency it doesn't look like semen I'm not even sure what the logic behind this was I'm guessing there wasn't because, I don't know, did somebody blow a load that big that it would become a giant balloon? And then did they need to dispose of it so they tied it off and threw it at a car? I don't know. But cut to about a dozen people standing on the corner of uh, Reeves Avenue and Morgantown Avenue in Fairmont, West Virginia, which is just a dead town. There's nothing going on. And that makes it good for this because there weren't a lot of cars out. We didn't have to worry about causing accidents or anything, and Cobra, who's our leader, he is holding the condom, waiting for cars, and you know, a couple pass, and he keeps, kind of looks like he's not going to do it, and then finally, in the distance, he sees a jeep coming down the road. At that time, the sort of super villain of the ones—if that is if we weren't the villains, but the guy he was most against was a guy who had only done one thing to him, and that was a data girl he had a crush on. He drove a Jeep, so he's like, oh, fuck, it's a Jeep. I'm getting it. So we all get ready. I'm there with the camera. And then he reaches back and throws it. And it hits dead center in this Jeep's windshield. And we see mayo water spraying over the car. And immediately you just hear Cobra's Riddler-like laugh go out. And then dozens of feet running and brakes screeching. We come back to Zach's house, and I swear we had to have played that tape a hundred times. We watched it in regular motion, you know, probably like 20, and then we kept playing it in slow motion so we could really see the spray and the look on Cobra's face as he turns around and takes off running. And at the end of watching it, we realized, oh, this is it. This is the new thing that we're doing on weekends. So we had it... if you grow up in West Virginia, you have to make your fun like this. That's just the way it goes. But now, the thing is, condoms are kind of expensive for teenagers. So we came up with a method of distracting clerks at the local convenience store while Cobra stole them. And this worked for a while, and um, we also kind of decided to amp it up a little bit since the semen thing didn't make any sense anyway. We started using any sort of condiments we could find, like... There was ketchup and maple syrup and uh, mustard. You know, anything that was in Zach's mom's refrigerator. This went on until one night we were watching the videos and thinking like, you know, the problem is we take off running immediately. There's never a good place for me to hide with the camera so you can see the full effect of everything. So we scoped out, there was an elementary school by Zach's house. And we realized that there was a little... I'd say like by the side entrance, there was a second set of stairs going underneath the main stairs. And it just led down to a little like cubby hole. I don't know what it is. There was like a board up, maybe it was a basement entrance they had boarded up, but it was just like a perfect place where I could sit hiding sort of underground with the camera at ground level and be able to stay there <laughs> while you know everybody else runs away and I could get a good shot of it. So the night we decided to go out and do this, We go to the convenience store and discover that they had caught on to what was going on. So the condoms were now behind the register. We weren't going to pay for condoms because that was just completely out of the question. So we tried to figure out what can we do. And then it was brought up, why don't we just buy a pack of water balloons? There's like 100 balloons in water balloons. And I was against this because water balloons aren't dick-shaped. And that, that is the whole aesthetic of the prank was that it was a dick-shaped balloon and we're tossing it. In. No, it's not going to work out. But then it was that we have no other option. We can either get the water balloons or we are not going to go harass innocent drivers tonight. And that wasn't going to happen, so we got the water balloons. Now, we go down to the elementary school. I get in position and Ghost, the guy that drew the shirtless pictures, he's the first one to throw it and he doesn't even hesitate. First car that comes down, I mean, we're professionals at this point, uh, and he tosses it and throws it, except something happens that had never happened to us at all. As soon as it hit the car, the brakes screech, and this guy who's driving is already on foot chasing them. We never had a chase doing this. It was always like, by the time they figure out what's going, hey, was that a dick-shaped balloon that just hit me? We're gone. But this time... He is on the move, and I'm looking through the video viewfinder, like, oh, shit. And then it hits me, I'm like, wait, his car is still running. So I'm realizing, like, "Well, there's no way he would just leave his car running in the middle of the night, right? Like, that that doesn't make any, there must be other people there. Um, Wait a minute, there's only one way in or out of this little hidey hole I'm in. And to come out right now, I would have to walk right in front of whoever's still in the car. It hits me that the best hiding spot was actually the best possible trap. So I'm starting to get really worried, like, oh, shit, I'm caught. As soon as they come out and start looking, they're going to walk over here. They're going to see that camera sitting there, and they're going to find me, and I'm going to get my ass kicked or hauled off to jail or both. I don't know what's going to happen. I just, so I take the camera out really slowly hoping they don't see or hear me and I hide it in my hoodie pocket and I just sit there and wait and it's I mean dead silence other than this guy's car running and then finally I start to hear footsteps coming back and I can hear the voice of the driver and he is yelling at someone just going like what the fuck were you guys thinking or you guys, you guys were throwing fucking water balloons in my car like you need to get your friends back here I realize that James has been captured that's my Korean friend who was probably called something horribly racist, and I'm listening to him, and he's not giving up any information while he's asking, They're like, oh, what's your name? What's your friend's name? You better get him back here, or I'm calling the cops. And then finally at that point, he's like, alright, uh, chief? Hey, are you still over there? And I sheepishly come up to you know, face this driver that we've hit. And this guy is huge. I mean, I don't think he was just huge for how You know young and kind of skinny and frail we all were despite the fact that we ran a lot he was really big he was wearing like football sweats and everything so i was quite frankly terrified by this guy however while i was down in the hole i came up with the perfect solution how to get out of this i was going to get empathy and i was going to play completely dumb that i had no idea what my friends were doing they just said hey you have a video camera come on out And film this, it's just going to be funny. I didn't know that they were going to do throw water balloons at cars. That's crazy. He didn't know either. We should probably just get out of here. And to really sell this, I was going to fake a cry. (laughs) Now, the other traditionals will tell you, I was really crying. I have no reason to lie to you folks. And also, had they been there, they would know I am the absolute worst fake crier. Not a single tear or even moist eyes came about from my fake crying. It was just a voice that sounded like this, and it d- didn't work at all. <laughs> and really, all I did was admit to this guy, I had evidence of a bunch of kids throwing a water balloon at his car, and he used that against me as much as possible. like, what the fuck were you thinking? Videotaping your friends doing this. And he tells me this story about, he says, didn't you hear about uh, those kids and they uh, burnt down that old guy's house? And that old guy died and their friend was videotaping it and he had nothing to do with it. And now he's doing life in jail. Even then i knew like, that story never happened. But I, I, I'm like, I didn't know what was going on. Just, can we just go? he's like. He's like, no, man, you guys need to get your friends back here or else I'm calling the cops. He just kept threatening that over and over and over again. And they weren't coming back. We could have shouted out for him. And I did. In fact, it was like, yeah, guys, yeah. didn't work. But um, finally, he goes, all right, he pulls out his cell phone and he starts talking. He's like, oh, yeah, I caught these two kids throwing water balloons at my car. And uh, one of them was videotaping it. So that's evidence. I need you to get down here and check this out. And it's just, okay, we're fucked. We're completely fucked. Then a car pulls up. wasn't a police car though. It was um just your typical sedan. And out comes a man who is probably in about his sixties or seventies, and he has a flashlight in his hand. He starts talking to the guy, and eventually he's the driver is saying to his dad or to the old man. I just watched that reveal. But he's saying to the old man things like, yeah, it's, it's right over there, dad. That's where it is. And I realized like, oh my God, this guy called his dad out. And his dad seemed to be a very understanding man. He was just like, well, you know, I mean, they're, they're just kids. I mean, if, if, if your car's not damaged, I think you should just let them go. There's no problem here. And he's like, all right, well, let's start looking for dents. And if there's dents, I'm pressing charges. So dad starts shining the flashlight along the side. And as he's doing this, I see right in the fender, just a perfect water balloon sized dent right in the fender. I'm apparently the only person that sees this because he just says, eh, I mean, everything's fine. You should just let them go. Let them go on their way. It's it's fine. But th- that wasn't enough for the driver. He was still ready to get one in on us. He's like, oh, yeah, get the fuck out of here. And just as before he even got here out, the old man's like, hey, 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 don't you talk to them like that. And that was like the greatest moment that the, this guy's dad actually took the side of the hooligans that had just vandalized his son's car. That was great to me. However, for whatever reason, I still thought like, oh, I got to keep up this, this fake crying. so I'm like, yeah, well, I'm going to tell everything. And what I didn't realize is when I got up from the curb, I had bumped the video camera and hit the record button. So even though I'm like, "Eh," like we get like a block away and I'm like, oh man, that was really fucking close. Can you believe that? Nobody heard that little segment where the rest of the walking in, they only heard the crying once we watched the tape again. Now you think like that would be enough for us all to learn our lessons. It was enough for me at least. I made it clear. I'm like, well, fuck you guys. You're making fun of me for crying. I'm not going back out again. That was too much for me. However, Zach really, really loved the footage. And he's like, come on man, you guys gotta go back outside and watch more of this. And at that point, uh, Ghost just says, well, fuck it. What's the worst thing that could happen? Uh, That was the worst thing. There can't be anything worse than that. And we come up with a compromise. I'll videotape it, but from the front windows of Zach's house. And they just do it right on the street that's in front of the house. That's a perfect idea, right? Just do it in one central location in the same spot over and over and over again. (laughs) Nothing can go wrong with this. Well, sure enough, as I'm watching both Ghost and Cobra standing on the curb, getting ready to hit a car as it comes by, the car slows down, a spotlight beams on them, and we see red and blue lights flashing. So instantly, you shut all the blinds and just hide. And I remember um, Zach at one point trying to quote me, he's like, I got it, what if I go outside right now? And I, uh, I just like, I go out and I'm just naked and I just start acting like I'm drunk. <laughs> Luckily, that did not happen. Instead, they got taken off in a cop car. We had no clue what was going on from there. Everybody else that was outside was like, like did, you, did you hear what's going on? And, no, no, we don't know. So it went on for like an hour. We had no clue what was going on. and We were just terrified that our friends had just gotten, you know, sent to jail or something. We didn't know at the time that you know, that wasn't going to really happen for what we were doing, and then about an hour, maybe an hour and a half later, Ghost and Cobra walk through Zach's bedroom door, and the room just erupts in cheers. We're like, "All oh, right, you're all okay." But then we see that um, that you know Riddler grin is nowhere near Cobra's face, and it's pretty far from Ghost's face as well. And they're like, "No, no, it's not okay." Turns out the officers who picked them up had about as much fun scaring the bejesus out of them as the driver that caught uh, James and myself earlier in the night. And they uh, kept telling them about how people were pressing charges and talking about calling juvenile hall. And the clincher of this was they took the water balloons they had left in their hoodies and put them in weapons confiscation. So when, their mo- <laughs> when Ghost's mother came to pick them both up, they had to go into weapons confiscation to claim the water balloons as well. (laughs) After that night, um, the traditional didn't necessarily end. There was still like a couple things here and there, but like the weekly doing crazy shit like that, it really slowed down. I'm honestly not sure maybe we started to realize that stuff was just really immature, or if, you know, maybe we kind of thought, You know, we're really not hard enough to handle the consequences if we would get caught. But I do know one thing for sure. The reason we got caught that night was because those fucking water balloons were not (laughs) dick-shaped. It it clearly fits the aesthetic. All right, thank you very much.
5: Tell you a short story. Boy's in the drugstore with his dad one day. He points at a box and he goes, Dad, what are those right there? He says, Son, those are condoms. He said, Well, Dad, what are, what are condoms for?
0: Well, hey, son, you just fill them up with mayonnaise and check them out of car. <laughs> hey.
5: Go on in there, <laughs>
3: Disgusting! He's a prankster. That was a very feeble prank that was
0: played. That boy is nothing but a rotten prankster.
1: My story starts with heartbreak. I was in a relationship, it didn't work out, and I was shattered. And the thing about this relationship is that I was so Sure, he was the one that I wanted to spend my life with him, and I found myself working harder and harder and harder. I mean, laundry and dishes and calling him and trying to get him to wake up in the morning, and as I was doing this, there was less and less sex. (laughs) And I realized, I am a maid, and not a sexy French maid who gets fucked while she does the floor. No, (laughs) just a maid. And that sucked. Because I like the sex. And it ended as it would have to from that. And I found myself with just my self-esteem in tatters. And I'm going to say something that's really real here and hard and vulnerable to say, but he was here for the first show, and I had to go up to the lounge and cry. And then I came down and I asked like 18 people, do I look pretty? Yes. <laughs> This is not chopped liver here. You know? Like you guys would fuck me, right? Okay, I want your numbers later. I'm not kidding. Anyway, so I was like, okay, I still like the sex. I want the sex. How do I get the sex when I have relationship PTSD? Talking to a cute guy, it kind of makes me have a panic attack and nausea at the same time. Like, ah, can't even fucking take it go away and i realized you know what i need to do i need to get back to my sex party roots i need to crowdsource my sex life there is safety in numbers threesomes orgies gangbangs, sex parties bring it on So I got back in touch with this guy that I had actually dated briefly before the whole horror started. And he said, hey, it was good to hear from you again. Come to my birthday party. I'm like, okay, sure. And he's like, no, you do not understand. My birthday party is a five course erotic feast served to us by sexual submissives followed by a sex party.
6: And I said, oh yeah, I'm
1: coming to your birthday party. Oh yeah. So the morning of the party, Dawns and I start to have the self-doubt, freak out, anxious. I realize like it's his 30th birthday party, and I am 45. When he was born, I was being finger banged by my boyfriend in the movie theater watching Ghostbusters. his friends are like in their late 20s and early 30s what if they're all like smoking young hotties and I'm gonna go there and they're like who'd invited grandma but you know what I believe that when you have those kind of panic attacks you have to just sort of like look yourself in the mirror and say what do you want to do back down is that who you fucking are a quitter I did not fucking come here to back down so I slapped myself in the face and I went to that fucking party (laughs) And I got lost on the way there because I was so
4: nervous.
1: (laughs) And I walk in the party and this smoking hottie in a mask hands me a glass of champagne, puts a date in my mouth. And I walk in and there are all these sexy, nice, nice, sexy people. And I was not at least, obviously, the oldest woman there. I'm like, okay, it's okay. It's gonna be fine. And then somebody says, Oh, you're the only single woman here. And look, there's the only single man, Kyle. I'm like, oh no, oh no, is it a setup? I look over at this guy, Kyle, and I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. He's kind of cute. It's not really a setup. Like, relax, it's all right. You know, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. That's the rules, right? You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. So uh, we end up sitting together at dinner, and he's nice. And he's cute, and I'm trying to get to know him, but it's kind of difficult, because the sexy submissive servers are making out with each other, and they're feeding us by hand, and they're taking our clothes off, and they're letting us take their clothes off, and it is hard to get to know somebody when you're taking somebody else's bra off with your teeth. And you're like, so where are you from? (laughs) It's distracting! But one thing I am getting is just that he's young, he's new, this is his first sex party, and he could really use a kind older woman who will take him under her wing and gently, in a nurturing fashion, initiate him into the joys of casual sex. And that's too bad because I ain't gonna do it. I have had enough of taking care of other people. Mama's taking care of mama. Tonight. Okay, so how am I gonna negotiate the after dinner into the sex party without in any way making him feel like I'm rejecting him because he's so sweet and he's so cute and he's so nice and it's not about him. It's just about me taking care of me. So dinner's over and there's a thunderous stampede into the sex party room. And everybody goes, yay, the bathroom, let's go in the bathroom, yay! And there's this shower there that like fits 15 people and a bathtub and the sexy submissives are toweling us off and the floor is heated. It's a free-for-all. Who doesn't love a free-for-all? It's grab this and titties here, woo woo, and I am just jumping in. Like yeah, titties and kisses and kisses and titties, is awesome. I love a free-for-all, but I'm kind of aware that Kyle is sitting right outside the bathroom with his shirt off, and he's not coming in, and I'm like, okay, that's okay, it's not my job, it's not my job, I'm having a good time, and sexy bath time is over, everybody comes out. And the room is amazing. It's spectacular. It's like eight double beds with enough room for a small dance floor in the middle. And a lot of the couples just gravitate to their own private bed and start to play, and that's cool. And then there's one bed, that is obviously the party bed. So I go over to the party bed and say, permission to come aboard? And they say, yeah, jump on in, girl. I'm like, yeah. Woo, woo. I start to make out with this guy, and he's nice, and he's cute, and he's ripped, and he's really, really sweet. And he doesn't want to go too far, which is fine, which is good, because I have like this relationship PTSD, and it's a really good way to just sort of get back into this, and we're making out, and it's great. And I look up, and there's Kyle sitting on the next bed with his shirt off. I'm like, okay, it's okay, it's okay. That's not my job. It's not my job to take care of you, Kyle. I wish you well, but it is not my job to take care of you. And then I find myself sometime after that, and I'm lying there, and this incredibly sexy guy has decided to give me a G-spot massage. And oh, oh, he knows what he is doing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. this orgasm just rolls through me like oh that was good I needed that I needed that and I look up and Kyle's gone like oh okay that's good I'm glad I'm glad that if he didn't know how to jump in he finally like took off and that's fine this is not my job to take care of you Kyle and I find myself then I'm lying there all blissed out and the birthday boy goes down on me. I'm like, oh, I like this shit. I like this shit. Hey, wait a minute. It's not my fucking birthday. Let's switch it up. And I find myself with the birthday boy's cock in my mouth. And it is a good cock. I mean, it's got girth. I am enjoying this thing. Oh, yes, I am. Oh, yeah. And he, oh, ah, oh. And it, Mm. Oh, oh, yes, yes, I can't even, Mm. and it comes in my mouth, and oh, my sweet fucking Jesus, do I love that taste, oh my God, I love the taste of cum so fucking much, you know what, I was in Good Vibrations a while ago, and you know that there's like this paste that you can put on your dick when you're getting a blowjob, and it will make it taste like strawberries and bubblegum, and I'm like, ah, that shit is outrageous! I hate that fucking shit! Because you know what's a good flavor? Dick! Dick is a good flavor! is full of this, oh, you know there's opiates and semen, they hit me hard I'm like, oh and after that I'm sort of sexed out, oh, which feels good and we're lying there and we're chatting and it's sweet and it's blissful I'm like, okay, that's enough for now, and I get my clothes on and I walk out all happy and blissful and there's Kyle in the next room watching TV by himself with his shirt off okay that's okay bye Kyle you know it's all right and I go home still blissful just like I took care of myself tonight and that's what I needed to do yeah and I fell asleep blissful with the taste of cum still in my mouth it was so good And I woke up, because I got a text, it was from the guy who gave me the G-spot orgasm. It was a text I never knew that I always wanted to get. It said, hey, I'm the big black guy who rocked your world. (laughs) I'm like, that's fucking damn right you are! God damn you did! And I fell back asleep again, and I was so happy, but I woke up at three in the morning, and I could not stop thinking about Kyle sitting and watching with his shirt off. I was like, you know, it wasn't my job. It wasn't my job to take care of him and that's okay. And I did what I needed to do that night. But if I could have been the person I really want to be, if I could have channeled my inner Dixie, if I could have been that badass, I would have realized that it is a false dichotomy to think that it was either me or Kyle who could get what we wanted that night. I could have picked Kyle up by the scruff of his neck and said, Kyle, I am not on the menu. What do you want tonight? And I could have pimped that motherfucker out. I could have gotten us both what we wanted. But I wasn't in that space that night, and that's okay. But I have to remember the next time that it didn't have to be my job to get him what he wanted. But if I could be strong enough and badass enough, it could be my joy.
5: We gon' have fun up on up in this dancery We got y'all open, now you're floating, So you got to dance for me Don't need no hateration, holleration in this dancery let get it percolating while you're waitin' So just dance for me Come on everybody get on up Cause you know we got to get it crunk Mary J is in the spot tonight And she's gonna make you feel alright Come on, baby, just party with me. Let it loose and set your body free. Leave your situations at the door. Cause when you step inside, jump on the floor. Let's get it crumb. We gon' have fun up on up in this dance area. We got y'all open, now you're floating. So you got to dance for me. Don't need no hateration, holleration in this dance area. Let's get it percolating while you're waiting. Soldiers dance
0: for me. This is Risk. This is Papik with Wendy Lewis behind me now. And we just heard from Cherry Zonkowski from that Risk slash body storytelling show from 2014. You can find Cherry on Twitter at Cherry Terror. And before Cherry, a little interstitial by our audio editor, Hope brush a little interstitial about you know filling condoms with mayonnaise and water and hurling them about oh and i made an announcement last week i want to make it again if you are a therapist or you know a therapist who loves storytelling shows reach out to me at kevin at risk show.com our new podcast Real, is coming in well next year it's coming next year and every now and then on that show, we think it might be interesting to record conversations with narrative therapists, or Jungian therapists who focus on the hero's journey and story archetypes, or social workers who work with personal narrative, anyone with education and clinical experience focused on the psychology of stories. Reach out to me at kevinatrisk-show.com if you're interested. Our final story this week comes from the risk show that we did in Minneapolis in 2014. This one comes to us from Javier Murillo, who you can find on Twitter at Javi Mario, who co-hosts an irreverent bipartisan political podcast called Wrong About Everything. And here he is now, this beautiful story by Javier Murillo, a story that he calls... Tony.
5: Oh, just dance for me. Oh, family affair.
6: When you're Puerto Rican man and you reach the age of say 26 or 28 and you've never brought a girlfriend home to meet your parents they kind of stop asking you hey when are you going to get married my parents and I especially my mom and I we were pioneers of don't ask don't tell like way before (laughs) Bill Clinton like we just talked around things. The way I imagined the rules of art, don't, ask, don't tell, sort of policy worked in my mom's head. It was sort of like, you know, I know, you know, I know, but if you tell me, then when your tia's asked me, why hasn't Javi gotten married? And I say, you know Javi, he studies so much, he has no time for girls, then I'd be lying. <laughs> and you know, it's true, I didn't have time for girls. So I grew up in Puerto Rico, and my parents are both born and raised on the island. They grew up very poor. My mom lost her mother when she was very young, and she grew up going from sibling to her older sibling. She'd go from house to house, or in several of these houses she would essentially work as a maid. My mom learned to iron clothes at five years old. And my father uh, grew up in a very rough neighborhood um, as well, and when they fell in love and decided to get married, there were not very many pathways out of poverty in Puerto Rico, and he chose one of the few available. He joined the army. And so we lived around a lot of different military bases until I was about seven years old when we moved back to Puerto Rico and moved on a military base there. We lived there until I graduated from high school. And went to college in the States. And so, this thing in, uh, about me that I really did not know uh, how to deal with or, or talk about, mom and I always talked around, which is, but that's not to say that we didn't, you know, didn't talk. Like when I was in college, Mom and I talked a lot. I had long conversations on the phone. And when I went home for vacations, like, we would stay up really late and talking until all hours of the night. Usually, we'd only stop, like, when my dad would, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, like, one eye open, like, come out in his white jockey underwear and yell at us, like, yeah, sing, so we'd go to bed. (laughs) and my dad he's he can be a man of very few words like a phone call with my dad essentially goes like goes like this abi como estas todo bien te pongo a tu mama it's like hey how you doing how you doing everything good let me put your mom on <laughs> and so when i came to the states for, for college that's when i actually you know came out as as gay and became this very sort of strident you know activist but not when it came to to Puerto Rico, not when it came to my parents and my mom and I. Over the years, when we the way that we talked around the issue was to talk about someone else. And we talked about my cousin Tony. Tony was everyone's favorite. Tony was my mom's favorite because he was about her age. Because her older her sister was a lot older than her, she, he was her nephew. But but they were about the same age and. When mommy lived with his family when she was a teenager, she always told us that Tony was the only person in the house who did not treat her like the maid. And Tony was my favorite because when we moved back to Puerto Rico, you know, we'd lived a bunch of different places. And I always have spoken both English and Spanish. And when I was like seven years old, we moved back. The rest of my family most were not bilingual. And so I knew Tony was a college English professor. And so we became friends, and he was always very encouraging of me. I was this bookish, nerdy kid, and he would take my sister and me to see plays, and he'd buy poetry books and stuff. And he was just this really great guy. He worked a corn rim glasses, kind of nerdy uh, college prof guy, and just a wonderful, wonderful human being. And when I was in high school, Donnie started to get really sick. He had like a liver, uh, some kind of liver disease. And he was getting increasingly sick in and out of the hospital. And by the time I was a junior and I was thinking about coming to the States for college, Tony got really sick. And it was pretty clear that he was not going to make it. And Mommy would, would come back from the hospital and just distraught. And I remember her sort of saying how painful it was for her to see that the nurses were all wear it, like hazmat suits and were afraid to touch him. And she said that they looked like astronauts. She didn't understand why. The closest Tony and mommy came to actually talking, I think, truthfully, was when Tony said to, to mommy, they tell me that what I have, you get from needles or sex. And, you know, I've never done drugs. When mommy told me this, she added, you know, but it was, it was sex with women. Um, the night Tony died, mommy was with him by his bedside with his siblings. And the next morning, his sister drove mommy home, and when she walked, in the door, she collapsed into my arms. And we sat on the sofa, and she just she sobbed. And, and she just talked for a while to me and my sister and told us, in her grief and pain, a lot more than she would have otherwise. And she talked about how painful it was to see him go. And that, that night, uh, after he died and they were sitting around his bedside, his sister got very angry because she saw the death certificate. And she said to their brother, um, their other sibling, who was a doctor, said, you have to rip that up. You have have to write another one. I can't take this because I have to take it to his job for insurance. I have to take it to the funeral home. And the funeral home was in their hometown, and everyone knew them. She said, "I I can't take that. And so he did. He ripped it up, and he wrote up a new one, one that did not have those three letters, HIV. And mommy told us this and was... So sad, but also angry. She was really angry, she said, because his sister on the way, on the drive from the hospital to our house, had spoken too much and told mommy that Tony was indeed gay and about how their father had been really cruel to him and how he had led this really sad life. And mommy is sitting on our sofa and sobbing and saying, Con este dolor que yo tengo, este día me vine a decir esto. With this pain that I have, today of all days, she tells me this. What I heard was that the pain of Tony's death was enormous. But knowing that he was gay, that was unbearable. And that was something that I carried with me. I did not go to see Tony in the hospital when he was there. And I told myself and I told everyone that I didn't want to see him that way. But I know now that just sounded lofty, it sounded like a, a high minded way of disguising what it really was, is that I just was scared. I think I was just fearful of what his life and his death meant about me. So when I came to the States and became this sort of Activists and college and as soon as I came out to myself and I led immediately a very open life with, in every respect except when it came to, to mommy but over the years it was through Tony that we talked about about me I made it my crusade to rescue Tony's memory and over the years in conversations I just made mommy acknowledge and insisted she acknowledged that he was indeed gay and that was okay I made her acknowledge the absurdity that our family had become very divided after he died because there were parts of the family that were saying very horrible things about Tony. They were saying horrible things. They were saying that he was gay, and they were saying that he had HIV. And I made mommy acknowledge the absurdity that those who loved Tony the least were the ones telling the truth, and those of us who loved him the most loved him through lies. And over the, over the years, it was through Tony that we spoke, but again, always about him and not about me. And even though I, you know, led this very open life in the States, I was fine with that. And I was, part of it too was just this, for me, this reaction, you know, like when I, you know, came out in the, in, in the late 80s and in college here, gay identity, gay white male identity was seemed to be defined by like, That you had to be out at every minute of the day. If there was any moment of the day where someone did not know you were gay, that you were betraying the cause. Like, if you're like, this is the barista, like, a latte. I'm a homosexual. Um... (laughs) And that that was the only way that you were truly gay. And that just felt really, like, forced and like, so confessional and so much talking and, and very white. And I thought, you know, I rejected uh, all that. And I also thought, you know, that I was being kind, actually, and generous to my parents because by not naming it, then they weren't lying. And that was true for a very long time. And I was okay with it for a very long time. And we were, we were good, you know, my graduate school friend, John, came to visit Puerto Rico, he met everyone, and everyone was like, hey, this is Javi's friend, John, his best friend. Um, it's all good. <laughs> and as the years went by, it stopped being okay. I don't know exactly when it stopped being okay, but how it manifested itself was that mommy and I just became more distant from each other. I didn't talk as often because it became increasingly difficult to talk around something, you know, like your, your best friend doesn't move with you to Minnesota. <laughs> uh, it doesn't normally happen. Um, and, and, I di- and I didn't really fully understand how not okay I was with it until my sister sort of broke the seal of silence and it was this was in thanksgiving 2006 so if you're doing the math i was a grown-ass man uh by this <laughs> point and it's thanksgiving i'm here in minnesota and i get a text from my sister and says mommy knows you're gay and she's okay with it and I like, oh, right back um could you explain that um and so it turns out that she that mommy and my sister tina had this conversation and it was very open and great. And I was like, oh, wow. And Dino was like, yeah, it's fine. And so as it happened, I was planning to be in Puerto Rico that Christmas. So I went to Puerto Rico and I thought, well, this is going to be the trip where we're finally going to actually have the talk. But as soon as I got there, I realized something was very weird and that, you know, it was holiday season and my brother was there and my sister lives in Puerto Rico. And my brother was visiting like me and mommy was avoiding being alone with me. It was very apparent like there was no late night talks and she just was avoiding being alone with me and i didn't know why i don't know if she regretted telling my sister or she did, i don't know and it wasn't until the last night i was home that i was like packing my suitcase and she was crying we always had very tearful goodbyes and uh, and i had i forced the conversation i said mommy i i know you and tina talked and she didn't say anything I said, I I just, I need you to know that I'm a very happy person. I have a very good life. And she didn't say anything. We just sort of, you know, finished in silence. And I left came back to Minnesota and was so hurt but so angry. I was just really angry, angry at my mom for wanting to continue this, like, let's not talk about it thing, and angry at my sister for raising my expectations. And I didn't talk to either of them for quite some time. It was several months. And when we finally did talk on the phone, I called it out and said, I'm not, I'm not going back to that, and said to my mom how painful that had been, that she had been avoiding being alone with me. And she she denied avoiding me, but she only denied it once. Um, and, um, and we talked, it was just a little uncomfortable, and our calls were few and far between, and it wasn't until the following Christmas that I realized that Mommy had clearly been working through things on her own when that Christmas I did not go home. So I you know got a box for my parents with, uh, with gifts, and, uh, and I opened it, and there were in this box two gifts, one for me and one for John. Pajama bottoms, which... I, I thought it was weird. I mean, she went from don't ask, don't tell to like imagining us in bed bedclothes. Okay, mommy. Um, but mommy insisted still, like through my sister, into that, that my dad couldn't know. That it, my dad would not be able to handle it. It was, you know, fast forward a few years after that, 2008, I was visiting them. And this trip was the first time in years that it just felt like. We just had a great time, stayed up late at night. My dad came out in his white jockey underwear and yelled at us to go to bed. And my last night there, we had this really... Mommy and I had this intense conversation. It was really great. We talked about Goni. We talked about me. I told her, you know, just so she'd know, you know, John and I, we'd had, like, wills and medical powers of attorney and stuff. If anything ever happened, he's good, you know. And it was just a really... It was a great conversation. And I I said to her, I said, you know, you... I'll follow your lead. You say that, you know, I can't tell that. She said, you, you can't tell your father he wouldn't be able to handle it. And I said, well, what do you think he would do? Disown me? Like, there's no money, and like, um, <laughs> and, but she reacted really badly to that, because my father, one thing that he's very sort of stereotypical about, Latino father, is very family-oriented. He's always lectures with us about family, and she's like, no, he would never do that. And I said, well, that, right, and I mean, I'll follow your lead, but I, I think he would be okay and so the next day I'm coming back to uh, Minnesota and we have our very tearful goodbyes and um, say goodbye and I uh, leave, I drive out in my rental car but no sooner had I left our neighborhood I get a call on my cell phone and it's mommy and I answer it, she says to me in Spanish papá contigo, gives it to my dad and my dad says to me, we love you we love you very much I love you too and then he hung up and I'm like and I'm like, oh, okay. So I found out later from my brother that what had happened was that when I left, mommy was, like, crying hysterically more than usual, even. And, and, and my dad got really worried. And he's like, like, what, what's going on? What's wrong? Is Javi okay? And my mom, who I should preface, does not normally sound like an actress in a telenovela. In this instance, she says to him, Nos tenemos que quitar las mascaras we must take off our masks. <laughs> if this were Telemundo, like her, her makeup would be running and she'd be wearing a gown. But it's my mom, she was in clothes, no makeup. Um, and nos, nos tenemos que quitar las mascaras. To which my father responds, you think I'm an idiot? <laughs> and that's how I came out to dad. No words. <laughs> and ever since then, its only difference is now when we talk on the phone. He said, "Cómo está? Todo está bien. Cómo está John? Te like, "How you doing? Things good? How's John? I'll put your mom on." I, you know, when I think back in all these these years, and you know, when I came to the states and all the fear of coming, it felt just so dangerous to to be gay and that with AIDS and just the fear that I felt of, like, rejection from my family or uh, that I'd be letting them down. And thinking about this, like, for this story to tell this, tonight it felt dangerous because I I've told you things here that are still secret, are still not openly talked about in my extended family. And when I started to put together, I just, I knew that I had to change my cousin's name, Because people I thought, well, people might hear this in the family and get very upset with me. And then I remembered that I'd not gone to see Tony in the hospital. And I remembered that his story and his life, they didn't just become a part of my life, but his story and his life made my story and my life more possible and happier and better. And so I just knew that I could not come out on a stage and not say his name, Tony. Thank you.
0: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Doves Behind Me Now, and we just heard from Javier Mario, who you can find on Twitter at Javi Murillo. Now, don't forget the very last Risk live show of the year is at Caveat in New York City on December 15th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Also, it'll be live-streamed on YouTube. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com tour. And folks, don't forget, we'd like to create a sort of a social event for Risk fans in or around New York City, next year so if you're one of those email me at kevin at risk show.com and i'll put you on a list of folks i'll contact when we do that also you can hire me personally for storytelling training or buy storytelling training with me for someone you love You can find all that information at kevinallison.com you can follow us here on risk at our socials we're at risk show on twitter facebook and instagram on twitter and instagram i am at the kevin allison and everything else you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com folks today's the day take a risk (laughs) yeah! <laughs>
6: doesn't.